2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning a new series this morning entitled, A Ministry of Integrity in an Upside-Down World. You know, with uh, September and the church calendar each year, we're, we're beginning a new, a new year of ministry with the kids going back to school and teens, college students, uh, new Sunday school classes, uh, just kind of a, a new time of ministry. And so I wanted us to concentrate this fall on what ministry ought to be like. And uh, the book in the New Testament having to do with ministry the most, perhaps, is the book of 2 Timothy. Uh, 2 Corinthians. <laughs> in 2 Corinthians, we see more of the heart of the Apostle Paul than in any other book. Uh, we see all the highs and the lows and what he went through and, and uh, just what he faced. And what his ministry was like. And he's concentrating on that in 2 Corinthians. Now actually, 2 Corinthians is the fourth correspondence he had with the church at Corinth. We have two letters. We don't have two. There were four in all. 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter that he wrote to them. So are you confused now? Well, out in the lobby, I've... uh, left some pages out there, an introduction to this book that'll tell you a lot more of the, the details that lie in behind uh, 2 Corinthians than I'll try to cover in a message. But uh, what a tremendous book. Now, if you are a parent, and you know all the highs and the lows of being a parent, uh, I think you're going to appreciate the heart of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians because he he is taken to the heights of ministry with them and then he experiences some of the lowest depths of his ministry in dealing with the Corinthians. They were his problem child but uh, obviously the love between the apostle and the church body was quite evident. So uh, We embark upon this journey this morning, chapter 1, looking at a ministry of comfort. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so grateful for the manifold blessings that we have as your children. We see here the fact that you are very much involved in the believer's life. 
We are not isolated from your presence as we live life. You're with us each day. And Lord, with all the blessings that we receive, you have in mind that we ourselves would be strengthened, but that we would turn right around and be a blessing to others. And we know that's called ministry. Lord, as we begin a journey in a book that speaks about ministry, may each of us find ourselves about your business. May we roll up our sleeves and be involved in ministry. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear those around us who need your touch of grace. Lord, help us to even be willing to get outside of our comfort zones as we serve you. Help us to serve you in the strength that you bring. And if there's even one here today who does not enjoy these blessings of being a believer, Lord, convict them of their need of Christ today. May they be a part of your family. May they be your child, experiencing all the rights and the privileges thereof. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. David Dykes, Dr. David Dykes is a pastor out of the state of Texas and he tells a joke about a New Yorker who was traveling through the state of Texas on one occasion. As this New Yorker was driving through the state of Texas, he was involved in a collision with a pickup truck that was hauling a horse trailer. Now, several months later, as he was back in his home state of New York, he was in court. He was in court with the insurance company because they were wanting to refuse to pay further claims. Now, the lawyer for the insurance company said, Sir, we don't understand because there at the scene of the accident, we have the officer's report. And in that report, you stated, and I quote, I'm fine. Really, I'm just fine. And now you're claiming further injuries and expense from those injuries. We don't understand. It seems to us that you're trying to pull the wool over our eyes and just get a hefty paycheck. The man responded by telling the lawyer and by telling the judge in the courtroom, you don't understand the context of what happened. You see, when I was involved in that collision with the pickup truck and the horse trailer, there were all of the horses lying injured in the ditch. And there I was lying beside them. And the troopers got out their revolvers and one by one walked up to the horses and shot the horses and put them out of their misery. And then they came to me and said, sir, what about you? He said, oh, I'm fine. Really, I'm just fine. One of the great common denominators of the human race is that we experience pain and suffering from time to time. All you need to do to suffer or to deal with hardship is simply live long enough. If you live long enough, you're going to go through a challenge with your health. You're going to lose loved ones. You're going to experience some kind of opposition for your faith if you take a bold stand for Christ. You're going to suffer trial and tribulation in some way. I have no idea where some believers have gotten the idea that once you walk a church aisle and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ, you're supposed to walk out of the church that day and never again experience any hardship. And some will say, brother, if you just have enough faith, you'll never be sick. If you just trust God and have enough faith, you'll never go through anything difficult in life. Well, we know that's not true to life and we know it's not true to the Word of God either. 
In King Solomon's despair, he said in the book of Ecclesiastes, Lord, the child who dies in his mother's womb and never sees daylight is better off than we are. Now that's a very pessimistic view of life and I hope you don't share his pessimism. But nonetheless, we know what Solomon was trying to express. He was trying to say that life can be difficult at times. Life can be filled with heartache. Life can be filled with suffering. Life can be filled with trials. And even in the book of Ecclesiastes, we know that by the end, Solomon came around to express a more optimistic view of life as one trusts God. But again, the reality remains, life is filled with difficulty. Trials and hardships come in many different forms. It could be through the loss of a job or the loss of a loved one. It could be through a financial distress or a marital conflict. It could be through a wayward child. On and on we could go with different scenarios that have to do with trials and suffering. And in one of those scenarios before in your life or in my life, we might have been tempted to say to God, God, are you not there? Do you not see? Do you not care? Well, the scripture affirms that he is there, he does see, he does care. In fact, in the book of James, James chapter 1, James affirms the fact that as we're going through trials of many sorts, we can ask for wisdom from God and God will give us wisdom to go through that hardship with. And Paul is saying here in this chapter that not only can we rely on the wisdom of God to get us through that hardship, but we can be assured also of the the promise of God that we have God with us and we have his comfort because he is the God of all comfort. As a child of God, We do not go through life alone. And that's one of the blessings and benefits of being a believer. You see, if you are saved, if you are born again, and your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, the promise of God and the word of God is that you are a sheep of his fold. He holds you in the palm of his hand, and there is nothing in your life that you face that he is not there uh, with you to face it with you. See, the unbeliever doesn't have that promise. But children of God do have that promise. What a great blessing it is. And so what we learn right here in chapter 1 is not only do we have comfort from God, but we have His presence. He's the comforter. Now several things I want you to notice with me this morning. First of all, when you suffer, you can have confidence in God as the source of comfort. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. When you suffer, you can have confidence in God as the source of comfort. Now we're going to get back to that point in that verse in just a minute. But before we do, before we land down firmly in verse 3, I do want us to back up and set the table with what Paul's saying in in verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, you'll notice that Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now he follows a practice here that was common in ancient times. And it makes a whole lot more sense than what we do today. In ancient times when you were writing a letter to somebody, right up front at the beginning of the letter you identified yourself. Now what do we do today? We, we put our signature at the very end. So somebody's got to glance all the way through a letter to get to the end to find out who wrote them that letter. But in ancient times, they identified themselves right away up front. And that's what Paul is doing here. 
But at any rate, rate, look at how he identifies himself. Paul, an apostle. Now that's going to tie in with this book. You see, Paul was under opposition there at Corinth. Paul had detractors. They were Judaizers. They were false teachers. And everywhere Paul would go preaching the gospel of grace that were saved through faith in Christ and Christ alone, these Judaizers would come in and they wanted to preach a Jesus plus something else salvation. They wanted to hang on to a lot of the Old Testament law and things like circumcision. And so they would say, you know what, it's okay to preach Jesus, but you need to have circumcision and all the other trappings of the law in addition to Christ. And so they would preach a message that Paul was wrong. That he was only preaching half of the gospel. And Paul would have to go in and clean up after them and try to tell them what the Judaizers are preaching to you is really not a gospel at all. It is a false gospel of grace plus human effort which is no good news at all. Well he was having to do the same here. And these false teachers would come in with their letters of recommendation and all of their references But Paul said to the Corinthians, I don't need to come to you with letters of recommendation or references. You yourself are my letter. You know how I conducted myself among you. You were there from the beginning of my ministry at Corinth. I preached the gospel to you. You were saved and a church was established. I shouldn't need any letter of references with you. You are my letter. Well, what Paul emphasizes is that he's an apostle, but not of his own appointment, but appointed by God. God had claimed Paul on the road to Damascus, and and Peter, the apostle Peter, even acknowledged that God had sent Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles, while Peter himself was an apostle to the Jews. But he's an apostle. And so right off, he's establishing his authenticity. Now let me mention something here on a side note that I've told you before. We need to understand that there is no such thing as the office of an apostle today. At least not by New Testament definition. We see the New Testament definition of an apostle in Acts chapter 1 when they were looking for a replacement for Judas. It had to be somebody that had been a witness to all of the public ministry of Jesus in and around Jerusalem and Judea. And somebody who had been a witness of his death, burial, and resurrection. We need to remember that the Apostle Paul, before he was converted as Rabbi Saul, would have been a witness to all of that. He wouldn't have been a disciple of Jesus at the time, but obviously he would have been a witness to everything that Jesus had said and done. And then on the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to Paul. He saw the resurrected Christ. And so Paul was able to fit that New Testament identification as an apostle, even if he called himself an apostle born out of due time. Not the natural order, but still an apostle. Then Paul reminds them in verse 1 of Timothy's value. We know at the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul had indicated that Timothy was coming to them. However, we know that when Timothy arrived, they didn't receive Timothy very well. And that is when Paul sent Titus with what is referred to as the painful letter. Now, 2 Corinthians is the response to Titus telling Paul that they had received the painful letter well and that after receiving that painful letter, having a good response to it, they were back on Paul's team again. And so Paul reminds them in 2 Timothy of Uh, of 2 Corinthians rather of Timothy's value. He says, Timothy is our brother. 
Well, coming down to verse 3 next, we see that Paul begins with a doxology. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He begins with a doxology of praise to God. Now only two other times in the New Testament do we find this similar doxology. We find it in the book of Ephesians and we find it in the book of 1 Peter. Now in the book of Ephesians, Paul is saying blessed be God because of his work in our redemption from the foundation of the world. And so he's pointing back to the past of what God has done for your benefit and my benefit. And then in 1 Peter he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for the great inheritance that he's laying up in store for us in heaven one day. And so with those other two doxologies, there's the past of what God has done and there's the future of what God is going to do in our lives. Well, that's where 2 Timothy 1, this doxology comes in because Paul is emphasizing uh, between, sandwiched in between what God has done in the past for us and what God's going to do in the future for us, we enjoy God's ministry now in the present. And what is that ministry that he is praising God for? He is praising God for the fact that God is the God of all comfort. That the believer is not isolated in his or her life. We are not on our own as we live life and go through all the trials and tribulations and sickness and suffering of life. As we encounter life itself, God is there with the child of God every single step of the way. That's an assurance that you and I can have. We are never alone. That would be a good place for an amen. We are never alone. We serve the God who is the God of all comfort. Now there are many things that have been said about God in the Bible. For instance, He's the creator. He's the sustainer of life. He's the judge of all the earth. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He's the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the wonderful Counselor. He's the mighty God. He's our Shepherd. He's our refuge and our strength. He's the God who provides for all of our needs. King David said in the 23rd Psalm, The Lord is my Shepherd. He's our Shepherd. In Psalm 27, the psalmist said, He's my light and my salvation, the one in whom I depend. Now folks, when we think about all these attributes of God that are listed out for us in the Bible, all these characteristics of God, attributes of God, there's many of them. We think of those non-communicable attributes of God. Those would be the attributes of God that He does not share with anybody else. They belong to Him exclusively. That's why they're called the non-communicable attributes. For example, these would be things like the fact that God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. These non-communicable attributes... But then we know that there is a long list likewise of God's communicable attributes. Things that he shares with us and in turn it expects us to reflect in our lives as we minister to other people. And one of those communicable attributes is the fact of God's comfort. He is the God of all comfort. Now the word for comfort here is not the soft, warm, and fuzzy English idea. The English word comfort. 
Rather, the Greek word of comfort here refers to one who comes alongside of us to help us and he gives us fortitude, he gives us strength, he gives us endurance to have the power to face anything that we face in life. He's our comforter. Not only is he the God of all comfort, but Paul in verse 3 here likewise says, He is the Father of mercies. Now in the Jewish way of thinking, to be the father of something meant that you were the originator of it. An example of this would be when Jesus said of Satan that Satan is the father of lies. Well, he's saying here, God is the Father of mercies. Now, let me give you a comparison here. Philosophers, when they think about creation, one of their arguments they use, Christian philosophers, was the cosmological argument. In other words, when you peeled away all the layers of the different events, different causes in the world, going back to the beginning of the universe, you'd say, what caused this? Okay, this did. Okay, what caused this? This did. And you get all the way back to the beginning, to that first molecule or atom. Well, who caused that? God did. You have to finally arrive at God. That there is an intelligent design in the earth. Well likewise what Paul is saying here. Using that same style of argument. That cosmological type argument. When you peel away all the layers of mercy in your life. You could say well so and so has shown me mercy. Well what was behind that? Well this event was behind that. Well, what was behind that event? Well, this person over here did this for me. And you trace it all the way back and you say, well, who is behind all the comfort and mercy in my life? Who do you arrive at? You arrive at God. It's like James says, every good, James doesn't say most. The majority or most. James says every good and perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights. Anything good in your life, any comfort, any mercy in our life, when we trace it back to its original source, who do we find? We find God. God is the source of comfort and mercy. We're only able to have it in life because He gives it. Jesus said in this world you'll have tribulation but be of good cheer I've overcome the world. Now where do you turn for comfort? Do you turn to God or do you get bitter against God? Do you turn to other people? Who do you turn to? What do you turn to in the trials of life? Do you turn to alcohol? Do you turn to drugs? Do you turn to illicit relationships, something to fill that void in your life? Who, who or what do you turn to in the trials of your life? Paul said we're to turn to God. He's the source of comfort and mercy. Second thing I want you to see with me this morning, when you suffer, you can have confidence in God for the sustaining of comfort. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says there, uh, who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. In verse 5 he says, for as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. What does God do? What is Paul saying that God does? God comforts us in all of our afflictions. The sustaining of comfort. He points out here in verse 5 that affliction is multiplied. Verse 5 says that there are going to be some constants in our life. Some ongoing things in our life that we can expect. And one of those ongoing things is affliction. In fact, he says that the sufferings of Christ are going to be ours in abundance. What's he talking about there? 
He's saying that the child of God is going to, to face the same rejection and suffering that Christ faced if we live for Him. We're going to face exactly what Jesus faced in his life. And what did he face? He faced rejection and opposition and finally they nailed him to a cross. And as Jesus said in John chapter 15, the servant is not greater than the master. If they did this to me, they will do it to you. So the afflictions of Christ are going to be ours in abundance. And on top of that is just the everyday baggage you and I face in our lives from living in a fallen world. But we look at life and, and we, we have to admit, we have to be honest that life is filled with a lot of suffering and evil and hardships and, and even believers go through tough times. And why does that happen? Why do we experience all of this suffering in life? We've talked about that before. Some of the things we've talked about ought to be pretty obvious to us. Maybe some others aren't quite so obvious. But one of the obvious reasons why we go through suffering in life, we, we have to admit some of it has to be because of sin. We suffer at times in our life because we've sinned. And even if we've repented of that sin and, and, and been forgiven of it, there still may be some consequences that we have to live with. Then there's the sin of others. A drunk driver hits a family and takes the life of a couple of them. The rest of the family suffers because of the sin of the drunk driver. And then there's cosmic sin, the fact that sin after Adam and Eve fell into sin. The Bible tells us that sin entered into the whole entire created order. The whole universe was plunged into, into sin. And that's why Paul can say in Romans chapter 8 that all of creation is crying out and longing for the day of redemption of the children of God. We live in a fallen world. So there's sin. And that explains why we suffer. Another reason we suffer is because of Satan. We have an enemy. In Revelation, he was identified as the dragon, the one who is against the children of God, and he's against the church. And in 1 Peter 5, Peter says he's a roaring lion, wandering about in the earth, seeking somebody to devour. We have an enemy. Another reason we suffer is because of saintliness. God may be testing us. God may be allowing difficulty to come into your life to test you. Who did he do that with in the Old Testament? He did it with Job. Now Job was a righteous man. God himself gave the verdict in those early chapters of Job. God told Satan, have you considered my servant Job, he's a godly and a righteous man. And Satan said, yeah, but, not, uh, but it's not because of for naught, because you've hedged him in on every side. Of course he loves you. You've protected him. But you take that hedge down and he'll curse you. So God allowed the hedge to be taken down. But God's purpose was to show that in the end, Job would come out shining because of his saintliness. But nonetheless Job suffered because of that. Sometimes we'll suffer in life just to learn the sufficiency of God's grace. We may not know why we're going through something. Paul didn't know why he was going through that thorn in the flesh. And he prayed three times that that thorn would be removed. And God didn't remove it. Instead God had a lesson for Paul. He, he did that uh, so that Paul could learn to depend on God's grace and God's strength. And so Paul would learn the sufficiency of God in everything. And finally, as Paul is talking about here, another reason we might suffer is because for the sake of service. 
so that the lessons we learn, we can turn around and be a blessing to others. Now look at Paul's testimony here in verse 8 of how he suffered. He said he suffered more than he could take. He goes on to say here that they were burdened excessively. Now the picture is of a pack mule that's been loaded down with a burden, a load to carry that is almost more than that pack mule can carry. That pack mule is about to collapse under the weight of that load that it's carrying. That's the word picture behind this phrase here that we were burdened excessively. Paul's saying we had such a big load on our backs that we were carrying as we were going about on those missionary journeys, sharing the gospel and planting churches. We were faced with such a great load that we just felt a little more weighed down every day. It was almost more than we could stand. He goes on to say here it was almost beyond our strength. He's confessing he was almost at the end of his rope and that he despaired even of life itself. He says here in this passage later on that he felt as though he could be compared to somebody who was under the sentence of death. And he identifies all this happening there in Asia. Now scholars try to identify what instance he may be referring to. Maybe it was at uh, Lystra and Iconium when, when he was stoned to death and carried outside the city and his body was dumped there on the road and left for dead. And the believers surrounded him and he got back up and, and, and he went back into the city preaching more. Maybe it was that occasion when he was stoned to death. Maybe it was in Ephesus. Remember in Ephesus they worshipped the false god Diana. The great temple of Diana there. And there were all these idols and, and the silversmiths in town. They made a lot of money off of building idols. And so when Paul came to Ephesus preaching the gospel, a man by the name of Demetrius, who was one of the idol makers, he led a revolt against Paul and stirred up a riot in the town because Paul was cutting into their pocketbooks. Because as people were turning to Jesus away from idols, the craftsmen were losing their source of income whether it was one of those events we don't know Paul doesn't really identify it for us but we know what he's saying here is there was something real something specific it was not just some kind of imagined trial or opposition it was something very real and very powerful that made him despair of life itself but look at what he says he learned. He learned to depend upon God. When Paul was the weakest in his life, when he felt the most discouraged, the most depressed, he turned to God in those moments of his life and through his weakness, he learned afresh and anew about God's power. And folks, don't we oftentimes do the same as believers? It's at that moment in our lives when we feel like we're at the end of our rope about something. We don't know what to do. We feel we have no strength to face that challenge with. God comes along and has a marvelous way of encouraging your heart and giving you strength. Amen? And God's able to accomplish great things in your life through your weakness. Richard Baxter was one of the great Puritan preachers several hundred years back. One of the, one of the great, great, great Puritan preachers in, in England. He's written a book that continues to impact lives today called The Reformed Pastor. 
And, and it's said of Richard Baxter that he went through all kinds of physical trials in his life. In fact, he was under the care of two dozen doctors, all of them who told uh, Richard Baxter that at any moment in his life, he might die from poor health. And yet it was during those years of his worst sickness that his ministry was the most fruitful. He wrote some of his greatest books and had some of the most profound impact on the church at that time. Through weakness. God sends his sustaining comfort. To help us through all of our afflictions. That his name might be magnified. So that unbelievers and the rest of the church can look at our lives and say, Wow, they know it's not from us, but they know it must be God working in and through us. He points out here how God's comfort is multiplied and abundant through Christ. In other words, affliction cannot outlast God's grace. God's grace and comfort will prevail. Now what was Paul's testimony? His testimony was that God delivered him and would continue to deliver him. And Paul is saying, and God will deliver you too. And so he says in verse 10, it is on him that we fix our gaze. It is on him that we set our hope. His comfort sustains us and goes on sustaining us. Now I want you to notice something in verse 5 that it would be quick to overlook. You'll notice in verse 5 that he points out that God's comfort comes to us through Christ. Folks, all of the blessings of God come to us through Christ. We experience justification through Christ, reconciliation with God through Christ, peace with God. We experience all of that through Christ. We experience God's comfort in low points of our life, likewise through Christ. You see what he's saying here? He's saying to the church, church I want you to understand something All of the blessings in your life come to you. God gives them through Christ. In other words, the unbeliever can't claim this. If you're an unbeliever, the Bible says you're alienated from God. You're estranged from God. Brother, you're on your own if you're going through some some trial and tribulation. If you're not a child of God, you're not a Christian, you can't stand back and count on God to bring you through that. You're on your own because you've turned your back on God. But if you're God's child, not only do you have salvation, but you have all the abundant blessings of God. Because Philippians 1.6 says what God begins in you, God is going to finish. Amen? That's the blessed assurance that we have. Now lastly, I want you to see when you suffer, you can be confident in God to assist you in the sharing of comfort. Look again at verse 4. Who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. The truth of the matter is that God has us all in the seminary of life. He's training us for ministry. All of God's children are in training. God is using all the experiences of your life as your classroom experience and the -the on-the-job training that He's given to you. Now folks, I want you to think about that. Everything you're going through in your life. You might be going through a marital difficulty in your life right now. You might be dealing with a wayward child. You might be going through a financial challenge. 
You may be looking for a job. I mean, any number of scenarios that you can be going through in your life at any given time. What's God's purpose in that? Yes, one of God's purposes that we've already covered is so that we would feel the comfort of God and the sustaining peace of God as we go through that, but it doesn't end there. Paul is saying we are to turn around with that comfort that we have received from God. And we're to share it with others. When you go through something in your life and God brings you out the other side. You are uniquely equipped. When you see somebody else in church that starts going through that same trial or tribulation. You have become uniquely equipped in life to walk beside them and say. Can I help you with this? I want to pray for you. I want to encourage you because I went through this same thing and God taught me so much in the midst of it and God blessed me so much. You can become a blessing to them. We need to start looking at some of our trials and tribulations that way. That after God deals with us in it, Okay, now how am I going to use this to be a blessing to other believers? You see, we've got too many in the church who we could describe as Dead Sea Christians. Think about the Dead Sea with me for a minute. Nothing can live in the Dead Sea. It, nothing flows out. Everything flows into the Dead Sea. There's no outlet though. Nothing flows out of it. And so you have all this high mineral content and salt and all that flows into it. It has nowhere to go. And, and consequently the Dead Sea is just like what it says. It's the Dead Sea. It's got all this stuff flowing in. Nothing going out. And you know, some Christians are like that in their lives. They're Dead Sea Christians. God has, has brought all these blessings into their life, but then they don't do anything with it. There's no fruitfulness that comes out of their life. And Paul is saying right here, we are supposed to turn right around and be a channel of God's blessing to others. And he tells us one way that we can do this. Look at verse 11. He admonishes them in verse 11 to pray with them. And he says, as you pray with us, then one of these days when God answers these prayers and brings us through this, what's going to happen? There are more people that are going to give thanks and glory to God. You see, if God does something in my life and I don't share it with anybody else, nobody knows anything about it, then God, then God gets thanksgiving from me. But if I'm going through something in my life and I get my Sunday school class, if, if I'm talking to a member here that's in a Sunday school class, I mean, I can't be in a class because I'm preaching both hours, but you know what I'm saying. If you're in a Sunday school class and you share that heartache with your whole class and they start praying with you about that trial and tribulation in your class and then you walk into class one day and say guess what class and you tell them about how God has answered that prayer then what's going to happen is it just going to be you giving praise and glory to God no it's going to be everybody in that class giving praise and glory to God amen this is the benefit of sharing sharing our comfort that we've received from God with others so they can learn from our experiences so that we can join one another in praying for one another. So when God does move and work, everybody in the church turns to rejoicing and praising God. And God gets greater glory out of that circumstance. Now there's some lessons I want to give you quickly in closing. Lesson number one, I, I want you to understand that Christians are not isolated from the problems of life. Sometimes Christians will say, Pastor, why, why am I going through this? Why am I going through this, Pastor? Do, do you think I'm 
really a Christian? Do you think I'm really a Christian? And they'll, they'll doubt and question. But folks, we need to understand Christians are not isolated from that. We go through the same stuff everybody else on earth goes through. The difference with us is we don't go through it alone. God is with us. You see, we're not isolated, but we are insulated because we have the presence of God with us. And so if you're going through a difficulty in your life, no, you're not some kind of Christian freak who belongs in some kind of circus uh, made up of Christians who go through tough things. You're not the only one. You're not some kind of abnormal somebody. The common experience of life, we suffer just like everybody else does. So you're not strange. Second thing I want you to learn from this, trials are an occasion to trust God. What are you going to do with that trial? Are you going to despair? Are you going to do like 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all your care upon God, for He cares for you. What are you going to do with that trial? How are you going to respond to it? In a believer's life, a hardship should be an invitation to trust God. A third lesson. What we learn from trials helps us in our ministry to others. Don't be selfish with the blessings that God teaches you. As you interact with other believers in the church and they start going through what you've been through, come alongside them, pray, be an encouragement to them. That's what a church family is all about. Don't be a Dead Sea Christian. Amen? Now, let me speak to that person here this morning who doesn't know Christ. I, I want you to see something here. You know, sometimes people will procrastinate coming to faith in Christ. They'll think, I've got all this time. My eternity is way out there somewhere. Well, you don't know that. But they start thinking, I've got all this kind of time. But I want you to also see what you are missing right now. If you're not a believer now in your life, you're missing what Paul is talking about here. You're missing the privilege of God coming alongside of you being the God of all comfort and the Father of all mercies. And you're going through all this stuff in life alone. Wouldn't you like to change that? Wouldn't you like to know that He's your shepherd directing you through that? I would think so. Maybe you want to come forward this morning and say, Pastor, tell me more about how to become a believer. I don't want to go through my life alone anymore without help. I need Jesus. Maybe there's a believer here that's going through something silently and you want to come to this altar this morning and cast all that care upon God because He cares for you and tell other believers to pray with you. Maybe you need to do that. Others that would say, I want a church home. Where all these relationships Paul is talking about in this chapter here, that I can enjoy that mutual encouragement with other believers in Christ. You step out of the pew where you are and come forward. We'd love to be your church home.